One of the primary parts of our worship service each week is where we take a large chunk of time to study a portion of the Bible. And our sermon this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 2. If you are new to the Bible, uh, first of all, we want to once again welcome you and tell you how much we're grateful that you're here and hope that you'll feel welcome to come back next week and the week after and continue to get to know us and let us get to know you and serve you and teach the Bible to you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we do have extras on the table in the lobby. If you need one right now, you can go grab one. But if you don't have one, you want to take one home afterwards, we invite you to do that. Um, There also may be a Bible under the chair in front of you if you need that. The passage of the Bible we're in today is a book called Acts. And so to find it, it's toward the back of your Bible. Uh, There are four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the book of Acts comes after those four accounts of Jesus' life. It's continuing the story that those four Gospels began. And uh, the author of that Gospel called Luke is also the author of the book that we're studying today called Acts. The Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of Jesus, the risen Christ. Uh, That's what that book is about. But within each book of the Bible, there are chapters and verses. The chapters are the large numbers on the page. The verses are the small numbers. And so today we're in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read in just a moment here verses uh, 37 through 41. The Bible is a book breathed out by God, written by servants over the course of about 1,500 years. Uh, And uh, it's designed to tell us the truth about who God is and who we are and how we can be right with God Uh, how we can have our sins forgiven by this holy God. So today we're in Acts 2. I'm going to read verses 37 through 41. I'll read aloud. You're welcome to read silently uh, and follow along. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Every year, usually around February, high school football players have a chance to tell the world and their family and their friends, particularly, uh, to tell the nation if they're good enough, but typically that's not the case, but to tell people uh, where they're going to go to college that fall, where they're going to take their high school football skills. They intend to keep playing. Many of those players have already made up their mind by the time that National Signing Day comes around. It's a foregone conclusion. They go to a table and make an announcement, but it's really just a formality because the coaches at that school already know, the fans at that school already know. A lot of times others know as well, but sometimes people make up the decision on the spot. So maybe they'll sit down at a table and there are four hats in front of them and they put on the hat of the school that they're going to go to. But one particular player a few, about a decade ago named Reuben Foster decided to demonstrate his decision in a very significant way, at least I think it's significant. He had verbally committed right after his sophomore year of high school to go play at the University of Alabama. Mistakes are made. I understand people make decisions that are regrettable over time. But, uh, but uh, then after his junior year, he, he actually completely changed his mind. 
And he decided to go to the University of Auburn, or Auburn University, whichever it is. See, I, I don't have favorites here. Uh, go to your Northwestern. But anyway, um, he, so he gets a tattoo on his arm with the Auburn logo to reverse course from just a year before. And then National Signing Day came, his senior year of high school. And he decided to go to Alabama and make history of being the only Alabama football player with an Auburn tattoo on his arm. And as I think about that story and the fact that he kept changing his mind back and forth, and just in case you are not familiar with Auburn and Alabama, which I really wasn't until I moved there. Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, even if you're not familiar with that, it's like playing for the Cubs with a White Sox tattoo on your arm. Again, mistakes are made, and maybe you don't understand where you're going to play eventually, but at the same time, this guy decided to keep changing his mind, to have a change of heart. What he was doing with those public statements, the one to go to, to Alabama in the first place and each one after that, was he was trying to give clarity to other people about what was going on internally because people couldn't read his mind. So you make your mind clear by saying something out loud or by getting a tattoo on your arm. He had made up his mind and had to make that internal reality known to others. We do the same thing in our, in our personal lives. This is why we wear wedding rings. This is why we sign contracts on houses. This is why we, as citizens, have passports. It's not enough just to say, I'm a citizen of the United States. We actually, if we're going to travel to Peru or Australia or somewhere else, they want to see it. They want the, the visual proof, a visual sign that something is true. And the point I'm making in telling you this is that in the New Testament, baptism is Jesus' way of showing who his followers are. And to turn that around, baptism is the way we as Christians show that we are going to follow Jesus, that we're going to declare our allegiance to him. Both of those statements are true. It's just looking at them from different uh, perspectives. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this passage today is how... uh, people were responding to a particular sermon and what Peter said to do in that response or in response to that truth that he had just preached. But I realize that we're jumping in, you know, this is kind of like jumping into a cold pool. And if you haven't read the book of Acts or the book of Luke, which is the prequel to the book of Acts, uh, this is all very strange water here. So let me just tie in back up and uh, explain the connection between this passage and the passages we've been studying in the gospel of Luke from week to week. And uh, we're going to pick up in Luke again in a few months. We're going to take a little bit of time off this summer to study Second Timothy together. Uh, then uh, that's all on the sermon card laid out for you. But we'll come back to it in September. But I just want to back up and say, okay, we've been studying Luke for a year. How does the first 11 chapters we've studied connect to Acts chapter 2, which we're looking at today? And so, again, this explanation is for those who are totally new to the Bible, don't know anything I'm talking about. And it's also for those of you who have been here from week to week hearing me preach. So both of these books, Luke and Acts, were written by the same guy named Luke, who we believe was a doctor based on what the Bible tells us, what history tells us. And he talked to a variety of people. Uh, He actually traveled with the apostle Paul for a time, and that's where he got a lot of his information about what happened, especially in the book of Acts. But he also, he tells us, interviewed a lot of other people about what happened in Jesus' life. So it sounds like he probably interviewed Mary, Jesus' own mother probably interviewed maybe some of Jesus' brothers and certainly some of Jesus' apostles and and close friends. 
and he did this so that he could, he tells us, so he could make an orderly account, so he could tell us the truth of what happened in Jesus' life. From the time he was uh, foretold that he would be born, through his birth, through a couple of events when he was still a baby, one when he was 12, and then he really fast-forwards. He skips from when Jesus was 12 to when he was about 30, and he begins to tell us about Jesus' ministry, which he began by his own baptism. Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he was a sinner. He, he was baptized to demonstrate his solidarity with, with sinners, to show I am on your side, basically. That's why Jesus was baptized. But then after his baptism, it seems as if while his hair is still wet from being in the Jordan River, he goes out into the, into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan there, just as Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden. But Adam failed. And just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, but they failed. But Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and did not fail. He perfectly fulfilled God's righteousness throughout his life, including during that temptation in the wilderness. And so then he he came and began preaching in synagogues. And the rest of the book of Luke, essentially, from chapter 4 until about chapter 23, is Jesus going around the countrysides and villages and towns, preaching and telling people who he was and why he had come to earth. And uh, he, uh, Luke describes Jesus doing miraculous works like healing people who had never seen or had never walked or who had never heard. He describes people raising people from the dead in a few instances. He describes Jesus causing storms to stop. He describes Jesus' uh, teaching about who God is and about who he is. And he said some really controversial things about who Jesus is, about he, who he was himself. Uh, he said that he is God himself. He said he was the Messiah who had been promised for hundreds of years, who had come to make all things right, to undo the curse that was the result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. He predicted that he would be killed, that he would be buried, that he would raise himself again, that he would be raised from the dead. And even his closest followers didn't know what to do with that. They were confused by it. They didn't believe it because they, they figured he was speaking in some kind of uh, picturesque language as opposed to telling reality. And these controversial truths that he taught about himself being God, about himself being the only Savior of the world, didn't sit well with the religious leaders of his day. So they became incredibly hostile toward him and looked for ways to shut him up. And eventually they arrested him, gave him a kind of a fake trial and could find nothing wrong with him, but they decided to publicly kill him anyway. And so they executed him on a cross. It was their way of saying, he's a lunatic, he's a heretic, and we want nothing more to do with him. While he was hanging on a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem where he was crucified, the Roman soldiers who had hung him there in the first place watched him until he stopped breathing. And then they pierced a spear in his side. All this was basically just to make sure that he truly was dead, that no one would be able to mistake the fact that he had actually died on that hill there in Jerusalem that day. So then they took him down before nightfall and placed him in a tomb that had been borrowed from a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a local religious leader, And then soldiers guarded the tomb because they were afraid that some of Jesus' friends would come and steal his body and then say, look, the tomb is empty. Jesus is actually alive. So they put their best guards, probably many, many guards, outside of a large stone outside of a tomb where Jesus' body lay. On Sunday, a few days later, a few women came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away and all the guards had fainted on the ground. 
and other gospels tell us what had all happened, but Jesus had come out of that had come out of that tomb and angels had appeared and had explained that, that Jesus truly had come back to life. And they explained this to these ladies who came back to the tomb. They looked in, didn't see Jesus' body. They took off running. They found some of Jesus' disciples and told them that Jesus had been raised. They went to the tomb. They didn't find him there. They went and told others that Jesus had been raised. Eventually, that day, Jesus started appearing to some of these people, and they began to realize that this was Jesus himself that they were walking down the road with or that they were running into while running down the road. And he kept telling them, go and tell the others that I have truly come back to life. And they would go and spread the word. And eventually, whether that day or shortly thereafter, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 Christians at one time, and he says, and many of those Christians are still alive, and as if to say, if you doubt my word for it, just go ask one of them what they saw. 500 people aren't going to get it wrong at one time. If they think it's just a mirage, they're going to be able to figure that out together, but it's not a mirage. He actually truly did come back to life. Jesus told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit descended. God fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit, which is from an Old Testament passage called Joel. And he he said just to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit descended. And uh, then Jesus ascended to heaven. And he is reigning there as the king of the world now. And he will one day return to demonstrate his power and his authority and his glory. He will come again to judge those who reject him. And he will come again to establish his kingdom for all who have put their trust in him alone in salvation. And that brings us up to Acts chapter 2. And at that moment, remember Jesus had said, stay in Jerusalem. And at a very specific moment in time, in that day, the Holy Spirit did descend just as God had promised would happen. And it was a very unusual moment, but it was one of the most important moments in human history that the Holy Spirit of God descended. Because up to that point, only a few individuals had, uh, had been um, given the authority of the Holy Spirit, basically, been under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that was only for short amounts of time for very specific tasks. And so now the Holy Spirit has come upon all the believers who were there in Jerusalem, everyone who had put their faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit actually dwelt inside their hearts. We call this, uh, this the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit, as a way of proving what had just happened, gave these normal Christians the ability to speak real human languages that they had never studied before, and they had never spoken before, and they were speaking them fluently so that somebody who had never heard uh, them, or so that someone who is from that language would say, it sounds like this person knows this language better than I do, basically. And uh, all of this was a way of showing that the Holy Spirit had actually come, had actually fulfilled God's promise. People in the crowd, though, were pretty skeptical, as you would expect. Like, if this had happened in the Walmart parking lot, you'd probably be like, I'm out of here. But uh, people there were watching, and they were saying, surely these people are drunk, you know. Yes, that seems unusual at this time of day, but And Peter got up and said, friends, let me just tell you, these people are not drunk. Let me tell you what has happened. And then he walked his way through the Old Testament. This is Acts 2, basically 14 through about uh, 36. And so you can look at that later. But basically what he says in that sermon is, this Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament expectations. He's exactly who we were waiting for. He is the true Messiah God has made him both Lord of all, the one who rules over all, and the Messiah. He has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. 
And that's where we pick up verse 37. Look back at it now with that background in mind. Now when they, that's the people in the crowd in Jerusalem, that day when the Spirit descended, heard this, which was Peter's sermon where he just explained all kinds of Old Testament passages from a variety of of parts of the Old Testament. When these people, non-Christians, heard Peter preach this message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And that's what our passages today, picking up there from, from this point. So, we've read this, por- this, this portion already, and I think it gives us 13 truths. And just to prove to you that I don't plagiarize my sermons, no good preacher would give 13 arguments in one sermon. So there you go. This is legit for me. Uh, but um, I hope that these 13 points that I'll briefly walk you through, and very briefly, I mean like they're, they're basically just one-line comments on my notes, Uh, As I walk you through them, hopefully this helps you understand this passage, and hopefully it helps you understand how this passage actually affects you. And I truly do mean you. Every one of you need to hear what this passage says, just like I do, and need to respond to it. So what this passage is talking about is repentance and being baptized. And just to be clear, we only need to be baptized one time after our conversion. I've heard of people who have been baptized multiple times. I have you know, some relatives who have been baptized multiple times. Sometimes people say, I just want to be baptized again because it makes me feel so good. Like, it just reminds me how much God loves me. I understand the desire to, to feel you know, the sense that God loves you. That's why we have the Bible, though. And that's also why we take the Lord's Supper together. You get baptized one time. You take the Lord's Supper over and over and over again as Christians. Uh, So this sermon is not going to cover everything there is to say about baptism. I just want to be clear about that. If you are expecting me to make certain arguments in a certain direction, you're probably going to be disappointed. Uh, I just wanted to be clear from the outset of that. But I do want to tell you why we emphasize what we do here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church and, um, and urge you to be baptized if you never have been before. And even before that, to put your faith in Christ if you've never done that before. So the 13 truths in Acts chapter 2, the first one is that true conviction results in a desire to make sin right. Where do we see conviction in verse 37? They were cut to the heart. That's just a very picturesque way. There's nowhere else in the Bible where that language is used. It's just a picturesque way of saying you felt immediate conviction. And maybe this is the way that you as a child felt when your parents pointed out I really did see you take that cookie off the counter. I know you're telling me no. And maybe a child with a sensitive conscience would start crying in that moment. Perhaps that described you as a child. That's being cut to the heart. That's feeling the weight of guilt and of conviction. And this true conviction results in a desire to make things right. So what is conviction? Conviction itself is a humble response to the truth. And what is the truth? Where am I getting that? I'm getting that from verse 37 where it says, they heard this. What is he talking about? The heard this. The whole sermon that Peter just preached. They heard not only who Jesus was, but the part that really cut him to the heart was where he said two different times, you crucified him. You did this. And they didn't disagree. They were the ones who were calling crucify him, crucify him. When Pontius Pilate was like, you know, guys, we can find nothing wrong with this guy. But this guy, Barabbas over here, he actually has proven himself to be a murderer and a thief. He deserves to die. And they said, no, 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 no. Give us Barabbas. Kill Jesus. 
And these people were the ones who were calling for his crucifixion, for him to be publicly, humiliatingly executed. And they didn't disagree. They said, yeah, we are the ones who did that. And so conviction is a humble response to the truth that Peter had just preached here. And let me just tell you, if you're a Christian, every time you read the Word of God, every time you open the Bible and let, it, let your mind soak in the Word of God, this is the response that we should have. This is not just a when you become a Christian kind of phenomenon. This is a I walk with God daily and I see that I do not match up to God's holy standard. And so I'm cut to the heart every time I read the Word of God. This is the right response for us as Christians. Number three is in verse 38 as well. Many of these are from, or actually the first one from verse 38, but many of the rest of these are from verse 38. And that is where it says, Peter said to them, here's how you should respond, repent. Let's just start there. Repentance is the right response to conviction. So conviction is the sense you've done something wrong and you want to make it right. Repentance is the right response. So repentance itself, and this actually bleeds over into number four. See how fast we're moving through these? Repentance is a turning from and a hatred of sin. It's not just changing your mind. That is a part of it. But if you define repentance as I'm changing my mind, you're falling really far short of what, for instance, John the Baptist says, for what, for what uh, Jeremiah says. You're falling short of what Isaiah says. You're falling short of what God says, repentance is, if you just say it's a change of mind. It's a complete change of direction. It's a hatred of your sin. The sins that you currently love and live for and want to continue. But repentance is a turning from and hatred of sin, replaced by a turning to and gratitude toward God. So Peter says you need to repent. Now what you don't have in this verse is the word believe. But let me just explain why that is and tell you that uh, argument number five here is that repentance is always implicitly at least related to and paired with faith. And we, we don't see that here in verse 38, but it's always that way. What we have is that the New Testament authors think of how you get right with God in a variety of ways. And so they use a variety of words. So they'll say, you need to repent. Sometimes they'll just say, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes they'll say, you need to be baptized. That's the next one we'll get get to in a minute. Sometimes they'll say, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. And there's probably a couple others, but what New Testament scholars have realized is that when the New Testament authors um, use these words, they use them in a variety of pairings. So sometimes you'll say repent and believe. Sometimes you'll say repent and be baptized. Sometimes you'll say believe and receive the Holy Spirit. But they're always referring to all these different actions and words together, even if they don't say them all. So maybe the way you could think of it is you could tell someone, I went to a really nice restaurant and had a steak dinner. By that, you don't just mean you only ate steak. It means you probably also had a salad and soup and then the steak. And you also had, and I'm, you know, maybe not thinking of, it's been a while since I've had a steak dinner in a steak restaurant. So what else do you have? I guess you also get then your dessert and you also then get coffee. I guess that's your fifth course. I'm not sure. But either way, you get this like five course meal basically, or even a four course meal or whatever the nicest is. <laughs> Again, it's been a while. It's been a minute. Chick-fil-A doesn't serve steak. So there's why I haven't been there. But what I'm saying is, by saying I had a steak dinner, you're not excluding everything else. You're just focusing on one item. And that's what Peter's doing here. Repent and be baptized. So repentance is always implicitly related to and paired with faith. So 
we believe that the New Testament consistently, repeatedly calls us as, as people to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ. So we typically just say, repent and believe the gospel. And by that, we mean turn from your sin and realize that only Jesus hasn't sinned. That's one of the main things Jesus taught us through his preaching in the book of Luke, is that he is himself perfect. He has fulfilled God's law in every way. And so our hope is in him, because somebody has to keep God's law perfectly. And I haven't done it, so if I die for you, it's worthless. But Jesus has kept God's law perfectly, so if he dies for you, you're saved from your sin. You have his righteousness, not your own. Number six here is that baptism, here in verse 38, is an act that demonstrates the initial fruit of a repentant heart. Baptism is an act that demonstrates the initial fruit of a repentant heart. In other words, it is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Earlier in our service, we affirmed together the Nicene Creed. And one of the statements that uh, I was very eager personally to get to, so I skipped a line. If you were sitting near me, you heard this accidentally. Uh, One of the lines is, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins or for the remission of sins. And maybe that line, if you have grown up in a Christian home and you've heard this kind of preaching of repentance and believing your whole life, maybe that line makes you a little uncomfortable because it sounds like the baptism is what is saving you. But what I'm saying is that the Nicene Creed, the authors of the Nicene Creed at that church council in 381, get that line from here in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, in other words. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. And so there, what the writers of the Nicene Creed, this group of church leaders who got together, were doing was summarizing the gospel and saying, baptism is a sign that you have repented and that you have received forgiveness. And Peter himself, who's preaching here, writes in his first epistle called 1 Peter, chapter 3, that baptism is basically a request to God for a clear conscience. It's not what washes away our sins, it's what symbolizes the washing away of our sins. So we do not believe that baptism saves anyone. And based on the New Testament, the Bible never teaches that baptism saves anyone. It's just a symbol of repentance. So when we affirm the Nicene Creed, I have a perfectly clear conscience, and I want to give you the gift of a perfectly clear conscience in saying that line as well, totally comfortable with the statement that we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins, which in context, in the context of this passage, means that baptism is a sign of our inward repentance which has resulted in the forgiveness of sins. Number seven is that baptism, it is an individual act. Every one, in verse 38, is to be baptized. Every one of you who realizes that you have sinned, every one of you who your heart has been cut by the word of God, baptism is an individual act that you make for yourself by the grace of God. Number eight, baptism demonstrates the fact that someone is under the authority of Christ. It says that you should be baptized in the name of Jesus. And perhaps uh, even when I prayed the pastoral prayer, perhaps when Clayton prayed in this service, if you've never heard somebody pray aloud before, maybe it jarred you or at least made you wonder what we meant when we say we pray in Jesus' name. Basically what we're saying is we're praying with Jesus' authority, realizing that he is seated at the right hand of God himself. He's the one who gives us access to the throne room of God, 
which makes our prayers do something more than just be words out of our mouths or expressions from our hearts. Jesus himself takes our requests to God the Father. And so when we pray in his name, we're praying in his authority. We have the same authority that that he has then to pray. And he does this, he grants us this authority when he gives us something called the keys of the kingdom, which is a different passage, so I'm not going to go into that. But I'm just saying that Jesus gives the church the authority to make decisions on behalf of Jesus because he's not here visibly. So he gives us the keys of the kingdom and he gives us the authority to pray in his name. And so elsewhere in Acts, we see people being healed in Jesus' name, uh, preaching by means of the name, but it just refers to doing something with Jesus' authority. So baptism demonstrates the fact that someone is under the authority of Christ. Again in verse 38, baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. We already discussed that a little bit. So that was number nine. Number ten is those who repent and believe and therefore are baptized will receive the Holy Spirit. You will... Uh, be regenerated, which was a a topic, a theme in the passage that John read for for us from the book of Titus in the New Testament. Those who repent and believe and therefore are baptized will receive the Holy Spirit. They will be made alive and the Holy Spirit will live in their hearts forever. So that's in, in verse 38 as well. This is why you want to repent and be baptized is so you'll receive the blessing of forgiveness and so you'll receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit living in your heart. Verse 39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. What is that promise? Well, just back up your eyes on your page a little bit and go back up to verse 33. In Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the promise here in verse 39, the promise which is for you, is the promise that's also mentioned in verse 33. And if you don't need to do this, but if you go back to Luke 24, again, you don't have to, but uh, verse 49 of Luke 24 says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, which is... Just Jesus' way of saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Fast forward a couple of minutes to Acts 2. Here you have that promise mentioned again. Verse 39, it's mentioned a third time, for the promise is for you. So this promise is the Holy Spirit will forgive you as well. The Holy Spirit will live in you as well. In what way then, you should ask as you read that verse, is the promise for not just the person who believes, but for your children and for all who are far off? What Peter is saying there is, Everyone who believes will receive this promise. In other words, I'm a pastor. You would think my kids would get like a special, like secret access channel to God. They don't. They need to repent and believe the gospel themselves. It's for everyone who believes, including your children who believe, and for all who are far off, which is just a way of saying geographically far off too. In time, everyone who comes after you and around the world, geographically, those who are far off. So the promise of the Holy Spirit's indwelling is for all whom the Lord calls in verse 39. Number 12, this repentant faith, which is symbolized by baptism, is part of being saved in a wicked culture. Verse 40, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So in other words, he's just summarizing everything else Peter was saying here. And he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You can't actually save yourself. He's just simply saying, 
respond to this truth and therefore avoid God's just judgment. And we need to avoid God's just judgment. And the question is, how do I avoid God's just judgment? I live in a corrupt generation, verse 40 tells us, a crooked generation. How am I supposed to be saved? And it is through, again, repentance and faith, through believing who Jesus is. And number 13, finally, just hit me. 13 is like the number of perfection, right? So there you go. Baptism demonstrates that one has internalized the truth. Or maybe it's not, it's the lucky number? I don't, I don't know. I think seven's the number of perfection. 13, baptism demonstrates that one has internalized the truth. Verse 41, those who received his word, those who internalized the truth were baptized, symbolizing the fact that they had repented, that they had turned in faith to Jesus. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, which is Peter's way, or in this case, Luke's way of saying 3,000 people. What a glorious response to the truth of the gospel. So all of that tells us that baptism is a symbol designed for those who have repented and believed the gospel. It's as if the person being baptized is putting on the uniform of the new team. I was never in the military. I mean, obviously, it's not hard to tell. But I would imagine that one of the coolest moments for those who are just beginning their career in the military is when you put on your uniform and you're standing at attention next to the rest of your fellow soldiers. That seems like a pretty cool moment where you're all dressed exactly the same and saying, I'm with those guys and those guys are with me. And there's a camaraderie or a rapport that they haven't had before. And perhaps for someone who maybe grew up in an only home and had a difficult uh, you know, child-rearing experience. Perhaps it's the first time in their life where they feel like, I belong here. Baptism is putting on the team uniform and saying, now you're one of us and we're with you and we're going to back you up. Baptism is a visualization of the spiritual reality that has already taken place. So we are a Baptist church, in case you weren't aware of that when you saw the sign out front. Uh, But that means in part that we are defined from other denominations, other groups of Christians, by what the Bible teaches about baptism. Uh, That's part of what it means. So for one, we believe baptism is for believers, for those who have already believed the gospel, have already consciously confessed their faith and repentance. Baptism, we believe, is also by immersion. In other words, when someone is plunged into the waters, which are behind me right now, it symbolizes being buried in death, but then coming out of the water. And James, I'll take you out of the water. It's okay. Uh, Coming out of the water, you're, you're coming back to life. It's a picture of the fact that God has given us new life. So it powerfully visualizes our union with Christ. We're now related to him through our faith and what he has said and what he has done, perfectly obeying God's law and dying on our behalf. So I want to be clear with you, whether you're a long-time member of this church, uh, or whether you're a first-time guest who has never thought much about Christianity before. Baptism is actually not one of the most important items in the Bible. I just want to be clear about that. So we would say that there are basically three levels of importance of truth in the Bible. We would say baptism is in the second level. The first level would be things like, who is Jesus? Do you believe the Trinity? Did Jesus actually die for your sins? Those types of, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian, and 
would urge you to believe those things. So you become a Christian. So we have those third level issues, or those first level issues. Baptism is not one of those first level issues where if you don't agree with us on this doctrine, and everything I just said about the symbolism of it and things like that, if you disagree with us, you're not a Christian. It's not that level. But it's also not unimportant. And I think sometimes we want to have, like, on one hand, the things that really matter and let's hold these essentials really firmly. Then we have all these things that don't matter at all. And what I'm arguing is that there's a really important third category right there in the middle, the second level uh, doctrines. And I would put baptism in that category. So it is important. It's just not one of the most important. But just by that, don't, don't assume that it's not important at all. Just to be clear again, based on what I've already said, no one has ever been saved because they were baptized, regardless of how old they were. Two weeks, two years, 60 years. No one has ever been saved because they've been baptized. In the same way, no one has been saved because they're a pastor. No one has ever been saved because they're related to a pastor. No one has ever been saved because they walked an aisle in a worship service. Sometimes that, again, is a symbol of your repentant heart and you, you, you know, talk to someone about your your uh, desire to be saved, but you can get saved sitting in a canoe just like you can get saved on the, the steps of a church. You're not a Christian just because you've taken the Lord's Supper. You're not a Christian because you recycle plastic or eat vegetarian or boycott Amazon or have helped construct a church building with your own hands. Nothing saves us except our hope in Jesus Christ alone and our repentant faith in him. So as we conclude, I want to talk to four different groups of people, and I assume all of you are going to fit somewhere in one of these four categories. So listen for the category that makes all the lights go off for you. So if you are a Christian and you have already been baptized after your conversion and you have joined a church, I want to urge you to listen to this sermon, obviously in retrospect, but go back and listen to it again, uh, and recall the grace of God in your life and all that is involved in joyfully following hard after Christ. And we would urge you as well, especially if you have joined this church. If you've joined another church, that's also, this also applies to you. Exercise meaningful membership. And by that I mean be super involved in talking to people about their walk with Christ. Be uh, letting the rhythm of the, that church, this church or another church, if you remember there, strengthen your faith, call you to holiness, compel you to tell the truth of the gospel to others, Exercise your spiritual gifts there. Give God glory for, for his name's sake and for the good of other Christians. Secondly, if you are a Christian and have already been baptized, but you haven't joined a church, we would urge you to do that as well. And if you live locally here, we would love to talk to you afterwards to talk about what church membership even means. What does it mean to associate yourself with other Christians and bind yourself to them and let them bind themselves to you? If you'd like the cliff notes of that, Catch me or Clayton afterwards. If you want an extended situation to talk about that, we'll be happy to set up a new members class for you. If you are a Christian and have not been baptized since your conversion, so you have not been baptized since you became a believer, we want to urge you to take this really seriously. Uh, Every instance of baptism in the New Testament is of someone who has conscious faith and repentance. And so you might say, well, what about infants of people who have repentant faith? And again, I told you I wasn't going to preach that sermon But the 10-second clip is there are a lot of passages in the New Testament that talk about infants but don't talk about baptism. And there are a lot of passages that talk about baptism but they don't ever talk about infants. They don't mesh together. 
And so um, what I would argue is that uh, if you have never been baptized since you're, you're putting your faith in Christ, since your conversion, we would love to talk to you about that because we think this is a super important step of obedience to Christ. Now, again, not every Christian agrees with us on this. I intentionally prayed for a Presbyterian church in, a, in this service before I talked about the fact that we have different theology on this matter. We have some differences on this matter of who should be baptized and what it symbolizes. Uh, I think, frankly, we have more in common with Westminster Presbyterian Church just down the road than we have with any American Baptist church that I know of, okay? Uh, if it's called an American Baptist church, they have so many different levels of theology we would disagree with from the Bible that we would say we're actually closer to, you know, Naperville Presbyterian Church or Westminster Presbyterian Church or Trinity Presbyterian Church, which we prayed for earlier in Jeff Ziegler's ministry there. So let's not get our socks in a wad about who's right and who's wrong. We're right, okay? So there we go. But, but let's just not be jerks about it, okay? That's what I'm arguing with that. Uh, and realize that, again, this is a second-level issue. But we can say that an unbaptized Christian in the New Testament is a total anomaly. The only one I can think of is the thief on the cross. And who really wants that guy to be your one role model? Like, this is the guy. See, he didn't have to be baptized, so neither do I. He was a thief, and he was on a cross. Like, please, don't make him your guy. But what I'm saying is he's the only one in the New Testament I can think of who was not baptized after turning in faith to Christ. Baptism is the initial sign that you have decided to follow Christ. So believer's baptism is the way you go public with your faith. That's the significance of it. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing way you support your faith and you show your union with other Christians and you're of your, the ongoing relationship between you and Christ. So baptism is the first step of showing that I'm in relationship with Christ, uh, believer's baptism, and then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing step to demonstrate your faith in Christ. And so if you have uh, never been baptized since your, since your uh, conversion, we would love to talk to you about that rather than having you just take the Lord's Supper without being baptized as a Christian. We would love to talk about that. If that's discouraging you, we want the opportunity to sit down with you and talk about that. But that, that's one of the things that we've been emphasizing here. And we would love for you to give us the opportunity to talk about whether you should take the Lord's Supper uh, as a believer. And then the fourth category. So if you're a Christian, you're baptized, you're a church member. That's one. Two is if you're a Christian, you've been baptized, but you have not joined a church. Second is you're a Christian, but you haven't been baptized, and therefore you haven't joined a church. The third category is you're not a Christian, and you walked in today, and you know that, and you own that, and you're not ashamed of that, and that's fine, and we're so thrilled you're here. Maybe everything I've just said is totally new to you, and you feel lost, and like you are uh, drowning in all this information that the creed sounded foreign, the songs sounded weird, the, the, the prayers were too long, whatever you would say, uh, the only thing I would appeal to you is I would love to have lunch with you if you have any questions about anything we've just said, or perhaps coffee if that is more your speed, or tea if that is your speed. But what I'm saying is if this has sounded foreign and you openly disagree with us, or you're not sure if you disagree with us, it's one or the other, We'd love to talk to you, and I'll be at the door afterwards as soon as I can get dry, but uh, if, if you would give us a chance to talk, we would love to do that. I told you earlier about this guy named Reuben Foster. He got the Auburn tattoo and then played for Alabama. 
He got the outward sign. He got the auburn tattoo. But it ultimately meant nothing to him. He couldn't make up his mind because he admitted himself he was a people pleaser. He wanted everybody to like him. So he was also considering Georgia. It's like the third person in this weird relationship. But by his own admission, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And so that outward sign of a tattoo meant nothing. And there are actually two ways I can conclude this story. The first is to acknowledge that that means, that story means that an outward symbol, as important as it is, as important as baptism is as an outward symbol, it's no guarantee that someone will follow Christ forever. It could be like a tattoo that you just kind of choose to forget about. One of my kids asked me this week, so can you be unbaptized? And I guess the answer is, if you decide that you're not going to follow Jesus, it just basically means your baptism was you got wet. But that's about as far as it goes. But unfortunately, many people who have been baptized have walked away from the Christian faith. And we have someone in the New Testament named Demas like that. And so perhaps you have strayed from the faith and called into question the value of your own repentance and baptism, and we would urge you to repent anew, to turn back to Christ, repent of that strain. But that story about Reuben Foster also tells us that some symbols mean more than others. Uh, For instance, when I wear a shirt that has the Under Armour logo on it, it's not because I ever worked for Under Armour or think that they're a better company than Nike or Adidas or any other. It's usually because it's a shirt and it fits, and it's sort of comfortable. But I'm not making a statement about, yay, Under Armour. So, uh, also, I'm usually wearing like a different organization's logo too. Like, here's my Adidas socks with my Under Armour shirt. They kind of don't coexist together very well. But some symbols are actually intended to say something, is what what I'm arguing here. They are actually intended to demonstrate allegiance. Baptism is one of those. Under Armour shirts is not. So baptism demonstrates, this is the flag I fly. This is the uniform I wear. This is the person I follow. Baptism is Jesus' way of showing who his followers are. And baptism is how Jesus' followers show that they intend to follow him until the moment they die. Are you willing to do that? Let's close in prayer. Father, use your word. Once again, we pray to change our hearts from the inside, to do an invisible work that we could never duplicate with human hands. Do that in each of our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.